Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Since we're still in October, it feels appropriate to begin today's episode by saying that there aren't many, like, concrete things that I'm, I'm afraid of. I am terrified of the big cockroaches that we have down here in Florida. I'm afraid of breaking a bone. I take, like, an excessive amount of vitamin D. I'm very afraid of my own veins. I can think of only two occasions since I graduated college, like, eight years ago, when I had my, that I had my blood drawn without fainting. And I can hardly think of an achievement that I could claim in the next three or four years that that would be more enriching than those two occasions where I did not, like, suddenly awaken in a room where I, had, I could have sworn I was just sitting upright. Most of the things that freak me out and, and get me panicking are um, situational. And specifically, because I've been having to sort of confront this fear on a regular basis, given the podcast, I get very freaked out whenever I'm interviewing remarkable people. People that I admire. And that is the exact sort of spookiness that I experienced this week while interviewing the historian Margaret Macmillan. She's the author of Paris 1919, about the peace accords, that redrew the map after World War I. And most recently, she's the author of a book called War, How Conflict Shapes Us. Now, War is a very bold title, and it gives the impression of a really daunting book. Kind of like the way that if you drive through Miami, particularly in older areas like Bird Road, or every now and then you'll you'll pass like a very compressed, like an accordion compressed strip mall. And every store in that strip mall will have a name like Computers. There used to be a place near my pediatrician's office on Sunset Drive that had, it had green tinted windows and huge lettering across the top of the building that just said Reptiles. In other words, you would see all these businesses that appeared to just be named after the thing that they sold. But these businesses were never actually called computers. When I lived at FIU, my friends and I would go across campus to this one of these strip malls that I'm describing, and we would often go and get dinner at a place called Chinese Food. And it was a great little restaurant, but every time you got the check, you would see at the top of the check, the place was actually called, like, Lee's Diner. But also, in that, in that same little strip mall, there was a store called Liquor. And I remember my, my roommate at the time, who was Russian, he would insist on buying this vodka that he was absolutely over the moon about. And it was called Russian Standard. His, his affinity for that vodka I, was predicated entirely on his allegiance to his country. But I remember we, it was always with such great pride that he would insist it was the best vodka on the market and it was so affordable. And he would always, he would buy the magnum-sized bottle. And he would hold it high over his head and he would scream, Ruski Standat! And then he would like just drink it in gulps and he would never get drunk. He was an enormous man. He was like six foot three and his shoulders were about the breadth of like two men standing side to side. That roommate, incidentally, he spent some formative years of his childhood in a rural area of Azerbaijan. And I remember early in the, in the year, uh, we were just getting to know each other. We didn't know very much about each other, but we were getting along very well. Whenever we crossed paths, we were each very accommodating of one another. So one night, we get in my car, my roommate, let's call my roommate Ivan. Ivan and I and, and a couple of friends that we had made on campus, and we go a few miles down the road toward Applebee's. 
while we're at Applebee's, we're drinking, we're eating, we're, we're getting to know each other. And this was like 2012. So there was the new phenomenon of all these Marvel superhero movies. And so that's what we talked about for a little while. And although Yvonne was familiar with American superheroes because he saw them on television and obviously in the movies and on the internet, he kind of surprised everyone when at one point in the dinner he said, I've actually never read a comic book in my life. And to be honest, I don't think I've ever seen a comic book. Which, if you were born in the 1990s, as, as he and I were, it's, that, it's not at all strange that you could have grown up without seeing a comic book. I think we were only like 8 or 10 years old once newsstands were effectively obsolete or at least extinct. And I remember as a kid, my parents would take me to Borders, and the comic books were always relegated to, like, a single spinner rack in the bowels of the magazine section, almost like they didn't want you to find it. But so we're at Applebee's, and, and my roommate says this, and we were all joking around, and, um, and someone made a remark like, if you've never seen a comic book in your life, you must have had a very sad childhood. And it's it, it, it said with levity, and, and Yvonne receives it with levity. But then Yvonne brightens, and he straightens in his seat, and he says, my childhood was fantastic. I'm not going to do the accent. He had a really cool accent because he spoke like four different languages. But so Yvonne, now we've all been drinking. And so Yvonne puffs his chest out and he gets this big smile on his face. And he starts reminiscing about his childhood in rural Azerbaijan. And he's telling us a couple anecdotes. And then he gets to this one particular story. And he goes, this one time, this one time, this one time. He's going, like, he's trying really hard to tell this story. But he keeps cracking up every time he gets a few words into it. And sometimes he tries to skip the opening and, and, and venture into another sentence fragment, but you know, it, it goes nowhere. He, he's saying something about a river, that he lived beside a river, there's a chicken, but like we can't get the details of it because he's laughing so hard. And as I said, Yvonne is a gigantic man and he's got this robust laugh. It's loud and it carries and it's very throaty, very Pavarotti. And here he is, he is in tears at the table and people at other tables are looking over. In a few minutes, everyone at the table is laughing hysterically. We've got tears on our cheeks and he hasn't, he hasn't told us any detail about this story. But eventually, Ivan, he works at it, he works at it, he catches his breath and eventually he tells us the story. He tells us that once upon a time in rural Azerbaijan, I lived on a river, me and my cousin. And one time, my we went to my neighbor's property and we got a chicken. It was the neighbor's chicken. And we had this box. <laughs> we put the chicken in the box, and then we <laughs> we put the box in the river, and then and then the river, the river, the river took the chicken away. It took the chicken away. <laughs> and then the neighbor came out, and the neighbor was saying, "Where is my chicken?" <laughs> and then his laughter starts winding down, and he wipes his tears away, and he's catching his breath. And I realized, like that, that was the story. And this is like three weeks into the semester. I had just met this guy. I'm locked into living with him for a year. But now I'm like, I don't really want to live with someone who's like, yeah, my childhood was great. One time I threw a chicken in a river. So that, I would say, was a scary moment. And interviewing world-renowned historian Margaret McMillan this week was a scary moment too. And it's got nothing to do with what she did. It's just me trying to get my head around like how to do an interview. Dr. McMillan has about as lavishly decorated a resume, as a historian could have. And even though I've been doing the podcast for a while now, we're well over a hundred episodes, sometimes I reach out to a writer that I like, and they agree to be on the show, and then after I stew on it for a while, I'm like, hmm, on second thought, no, I don't deserve this. One time I went on a date with a medical student, and she was nearing the end of her residency, and after, like, preliminary chit-chat, um, after we'd sat down at the bar, 
she asked me what I had done that day, and I was like, oh, I did some reading, did some writing, watched a movie, how about you? And when I asked her what she had done that day, she was like, well, I had to do two C-sections, and the first one was rough because the mother had a spinal problem, and so we had to, like, accommodate that on the table, and then things got tense in the operating room with the second C-section because I had to ask one of the nurses to tape my glasses to the back of my head. They kept, like, sliding down my nose, and I was afraid they were gonna fall into this woman's abdomen, but then this is, like, the third time I've had to ask that particular nurse to tape my glasses around my head, and it's, like, it's obviously a menial thing to have to ask a professional and I know she doesn't like it. But then once I was done with that second consecutive miracle of the day, I felt like it was all worthwhile. She didn't refer to it as a, as a miracle. That was the way it sounded to me. And I felt so dumb because I told her about this like stupid schlubby day that I'd had. Like if I had known that she had spent her afternoon like bringing human life into the world, I would have done something interesting. Like I would have like ride a horse or throw a chicken in the river. I get stressed out about these interviews before they happen. And I, I, I always neglect to remind myself, like, look, this author was nice enough to accord a complete stranger 30 minutes of their time. And so right away, implicitly, I should be like, this is a generous person. The, the conversation will be fine. Also, I think I kind of psych myself out with all the prep work. I read two of Dr. McMillan's books before we spoke this week. A series of lectures from a few years ago called Dangerous Games, about how leaders and, and whole countries sometimes manipulate their own histories in order to advance a certain cause, and how that can be a kind of pernicious cycle. Also, I read War, her most recent book, which seems, again, by its title, like it would be this huge, forbidding work, encompassing like the most complicated, horrific topic that a historian can cover. And I was thinking, when I first picked it up, that someone who has been studying war for decades is going to have so rounded an understanding of it that they're going to be talking on a level that I can't quite reach. I'm afraid that the author will have cultivated, like, a vocabulary of war, and I'm gonna have to learn that vocabulary before I crack the book, otherwise I'm gonna be totally lost. Like, for instance, I still don't know the hierarchy of military authority, like, I don't know the difference between a colonel and a sergeant and a lieutenant. I don't know what any of those titles mean. I don't know the difference between a platoon and a troop and a brigade. Most likely, if I was on a battlefield and someone showed me a horse, I'd be like, Pfft. That's a long donkey. History is just so intimidating. It is the largest story ever told. But I think that a big part of what makes Dr. McMillan so distinct as a historian is that she has always taught history. She's not writing for posterity or to impress fellow historians. She's writing for you and for me, like a general reader. She breaks her latest book about war into chapters focusing on the causes of war, the means of war. And she charts, uh, in particular, three eras that I didn't realize war is grouped into, historically. There was the period with spears and archery, and then a different kind of war emerged once horses got into the fray, and then a still greater kind of war once, once uh, gunpowder was implemented. The book also has a chapter about the plights of civilians during wartime, and the media that gets generated during war, the, the painting, the, the filmmaking, the music. And, and she closes the book with a meditation on the future of war, and I think the thing that we all kind of are anticipating, but probably try not to think about, which is the day when cyberspace becomes the theater of a major war. The scope of Macmillan's reference is vast in terms of time and space. In the same paragraph, she will invoke Louis XIV, Hitler, ancient Greece, Vietnam. She cites Shakespeare in one line, and then a 1940s piece of Hollywood propaganda in the next. And she traverses all this subject matter somehow without ever making it disorienting. War, how conflict shapes us, is a remarkable book. It's not even 300 pages long. It is lean, it is propulsive, it's conversational. It is much heavier emotionally and intellectually than the sum of its pages. Here it is, 
my conspicuously nervous conversation with Margaret McMillan. And I was thinking as I was progressing through the book and as you're listing misfortune after misfortune, um, when Norman Mailer was embarking on writing his last novel about Hitler's youth, his wife told him, um, I want you to keep in mind that as you are researching Hitler, it's gonna put your head in a cloud and I have to live with you. And you have other people in your family who are gonna have to live with you as you're enduring this. It's not just about you. And a, a writer I like named Don Winslow has written several books about the Mexican cartels and says that there were afternoons where he has to just look at crime scene photos and videos of gangland executions. But I, I never heard either of those authors talk about what it was like to go home and have dinner with their family afterwards. And if the, the material in which they had mired themselves kind of polluted their headspace or their mood in some respects. That's interesting. And I think perhaps because I'm a historian, I've learned over the years to have a sort of detachment because so much of history is terrible. And if you study the history of the 19th and 20th centuries, you come across terrible things. And perhaps I've learned a sort of detachment and that sounds hard hearted, but I do get absorbed in the subject. Um, and there are times when I think I just don't want to go on reading another description of the sack of a city when people are put to the sword and, and women and children are, are brutalized, raped, taken away as slaves. And so occasionally I do stop, but I've learned, I think, to put a certain sort of detachment. And we, something you explore in war and in other parts, in, in other books and in many of your talks is that in our discourse about war, we focus on its influence on soldiers as opposed to civilians, uh, when really that is one of the major theaters of war is the home front. And um, I was wondering if you could riff on just sort of how that is neglected. I think it's part of our peculiar fascination with war. I mean, we like the, the stories of great heroism, of bravery. We like the great dramas, the big battles. And I think much too often we forget about the victims of war. I mean, so often civilians are caught up in wars which they don't make, they have no part in, and they simply happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so when I was doing my book, I tried very much to write about civilians because I think we don't pay enough attention to them. And they often suffer horribly through war. They're often used as pawns in war. They, they're used as, as, you know, they're, they're held for ransom. Um, they're often killed to make a point to the other side. And I've always thought, and the more I read about war, the more I came to think that it's really important to take the civilians into account because their story is part of the story of war. And we need to get away from this view of war as something that is just one heroic deed after another or one atrocity after another. It's, it's, it's a complicated event which involves lots of people in many different ways. And the civilian story is very a very important part of that. And I imagine it's also one of the greatest troves for um primary documents, diaries, and, and stuff like that. Do you, do you explore primary documents very much when um, you're diving into a book? As much as I can. Um, you know, it depends. I don't read all that many languages, um, but I can read in French, I can read in Italian, I read in English. But of course, the further back you go, the fewer primary documents you have. And they tend to be limited because the sort of people who could read and write in the past tended to be the privileged. And so what's very difficult is to recover the voices of the ordinary people you know, the farmer in his fields, um, the woman with her baby. And because often before the modern age, those people wouldn't have recorded their stories. Sometimes others recorded their stories, but recovering the voices of those who are the, 
victims of war or those who are the ordinary soldiers is actually quite difficult because until the modern age they didn't write. Most of Napoleon's soldiers, for example, didn't read and write. So we don't really have many ways of finding out what it was they were actually thinking and feeling. On the subject of handling documents, I noticed you have one of the most interesting, for the book of, for war, you have one of the most interesting acknowledgements sections I've read in a while because you really give, present a portrait of like a community of historians. You, you mentioned that Hermione Lee dusted up an early draft of this. Yeah. And I was wondering, uh, is there in that community, is there an anxiety of influence? I suppose there always is, just as there is with, with people you meet. Um, you know, if you have very strong friendships, they may well affect the way in which you see the world. But I think as historians, what we must do is respect the evidence and we have to make up our own minds. But you depend very much on the work of others. I mean, the historians who have gone through, for example, there was a wonderful book I read when I was doing my book on war, where someone went through the letters of the French soldiers that they sent home to their families and found a collection of these. And so I benefited hugely from that work. And I benefited from the work of those who looked at what Roman and Greek soldiers were like. And so we depend on each other, but we can't take each other's opinions. And quite often I will disagree with a fellow historian. I mean, that's what we do. It's, it's part of, of our job description, I think, in some ways. What I have found, and it's not true of all types of historians, but I found those who study war incredibly generous, actually, because I came into this field very much as an amateur and at Oxford and elsewhere, I met some really good historians of war who've been doing it all their lives. And they were extremely nice to me. They didn't say, more or less, how dare you come into our patch? They said, how can we help? And have you read this? And, and can I suggest that? And I was really struck um, by the openness of historians of war to, to people coming into their field. I think they're delighted when people want to share their interest in war. Do they? Is that a, I would think that was a pretty robust camp. Is it, it, are not many historians sort of labeling themselves as explicitly as uh, war historians? It's a fairly small group actually. It's probably becoming smaller because in a number of universities, I think particularly in North America, there's a feeling that somehow studying war means that you like it, which I think right. is wrong. I mean, I think the more you study war, the more you come to dislike it and, and hate it. But I think there is an unwillingness to hire people who teach about the history of war. And the history of war isn't just, it's not about weapons and it's not just about battles. It's about this very complicated relationship between war and society. It's about the way in which war has affected our societies, affected our arts, affected our institutions, and how they in turn affect the types of wars we fight. And so I think the history of war actually is a very broad subject. And unfortunately, I think at the moment in a number of Western universities, it's seen as something you don't really want to study. Um, and I, I, I find that unfortunate because war is always going to be with us as far as I can see. It's certainly with us in the world at the moment. And I think we need to know about it. You mentioned in, in respect to the art of war that part of the reason it's so celebrated probably has something to do with the fact that it's so pithy and brief. And when I think of, for instance, William T. Bowman attempting to do a history of war and violence, it spanned to 3,000 pages and nobody really read it. Um, your book is remarkable for its organization and for how it's so structured for accessibility. And I'm wondering, what did you, were there topics on which you got lost in the weeds? How long was the first draft? Did you went jettison whole approaches because you simply were getting too lost? It was a very difficult book to write. It started out as a series of lectures and I made a list of all the topics connected with where I was doing five lectures. And I started out and I, when my first list was something like 25. 
And so I had to try and narrow it down. And I, I said to myself, what would I be interested in knowing if I didn't know much about war? And I was a member of the, of the, the public. These lectures were public lectures given on the British Broadcasting Corporation. What would I be interested in knowing about? And I thought, well, I'm interested as a woman in how war affects women. I'm interested in how war affects our arts and vice versa. I'm in, interested in how people become warriors. Who, who, who becomes the sort of person who fights? You know, how, how are warriors made? Are they born or is, is there some form of societal process and, and cultural process that turns them in to soldiers or sailors or people who, who, who are pilots? And so I tried to find the sort of subjects that interested me and people suggested subjects to me. I mean, and, and the, the idea of doing a separate sort of lecture and chapter on civilians came very early. I was talking to a friend who's done a lot of histories of war and he said, you know, I regret now that he said I didn't pay more attention to civilians because I think it's a very important part of the story. And so I gained a lot from sort of people who said that's an interesting subject. And you're right, I mean, it could be a huge book. And I, what I didn't want to do was a history of the whole of war because you know that you go back to the classical period, you, you go back to the you know, warring kingdoms in China, you, you'd end up, as you say, with a, with a book of 3000 pages or more. And so what I tried to do is just take aspects. And there are lots of other aspects. I mean, you know, I could have done a whole chapter on medicine and war, because that's very important. I could have done a whole chapter, chapter on propaganda and war. But I chose the things that partly interested me and I thought might be of interest to a general audience. From what I've noticed of your work, it is kind of, there is a survey approach. And you've mentioned that you were a professor for many years at a, at a college that I believe mostly focused on STEM programs. And so you had to find a way of engaging the yeah. audience on that front. Um, I spoke with HW Brands recently, mm -hmm. and we talked about Robert Caro and the, the idea of sort of diving into a top, obviously Caro is almost a caricature of the deep dive approach, but your books are, are very survey, very conversational, very embracing. Were, were you ever interested in the kind of project where you surrender your, your, a decade of your life to a particular topic and then you turn out a tome? Yeah, I've done both. Um, I did um, a book on the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, which came at the end of the First World War and had big repercussions for the rest of the history of the 20th century. And I spent well over 10 years on that. I mean, it, it was something I did I didn't have a publisher, I just did it because I was fascinated by it. And I spent huge amounts of time on it. Every summer I'd go somewhere else, I'd sit in archives, I'd, I read every memoir I could get my hands on. And so I've done that and I like doing that, but I also like synthesizing things because I think we need both in history. We need the very detailed studies, but you have to put them together. So someone who wants to know how the history of the 20th century turned out, you can't just tell them, well, you know, read the history of Berlin for 1933 and you'll, you'll, understand, you'll understand something for sure, because the Nazis take over in 1933, but you won't be able to fit that into the larger picture. And I think as historians, I'm very fortunate. I've been paid all my life to teach history and I've been paid by universities. I think we have almost an obligation to try and make our subject of interest to the general interested public. You know, I think we, in a way, owe it to people to tell them stories about the past, to tell them about the past. I mean, they can go and read for themselves, but to get them interested because they're living in a world that's shaped by what came before. Yes, and you, I think it was at the beginning of Dangerous Games that you talked about this paradox, a kind of painful paradox that people undertake where we seek leaders. We want people whom we can venerate and 
who might help us to sort of transcend our own limitations and guide us through dark moments. But because we want those leaders, we also want to learn about them and humanize them. And so we, whether it's reading gossip columns or biographies, whatever, you start to see their foibles and you see that they aren't necessarily venerable. And it's, we have this impulse of both creating leaders and then tearing them down. Yeah. And as surely as someone reaches voting age and as they progress into adulthood, they become so, they have such a track record of disappointment with their leaders. And I was listening to an interview that you gave um, in which, oh, it was, it, was, it was occasioned, I believe, by The Economist after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. And you did not sound livid or anything, but it made me think, and, and when you talk about the motives of war, how it's also cyclical, it's, it seems like no one is learning from history, is anger, I don't mean to sound flippant about it, but is there a lot of anger for a historian reading the news and seeing the cycles taking place? Well, I think we're citizens like anyone else. And I think we do develop very strong views on it. And I think sometimes, perhaps because we're historians, we think, you know, we're seeing people make mistakes that have been made before. And we're wishing that they would just be more careful. Um, you know, the sort of rhetoric I mean, and you've got a problem in the United States at the moment, I think. Your rhetoric is becoming more and more angry. Um, the, the middle ground seems to be disappearing. I was just reading a story in the Washington Post about what's happening in, in I think it's Montana, in a sort of valley where people have always got on, and now they, they're not talking to each other. And people who are trying to bridge the gap are finding themselves attacked by both sides. And we've seen what's happened in the past when that happens, when people stop trying to work with each other and start shouting at each other. So I think Perhaps historians sometimes have a certain exasperation. They think, you know, can't you remember that this can lead to bad things? And, you know, perhaps, you know, you, 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 the past never repeats itself exactly, but sometimes it gives you some pretty useful warnings. Um, you know, don't trust leaders who promise they're going to do everything for you because they for sure won't. You know, we, we're seeing a lot of populist leaders in the world now who say, trust me, I'm going to solve everything. It's, it's simple. I'll solve it. We've seen that before, and we know exactly how badly it can turn out. That reminds me that one of the passages in the book that really kind of really resonated with, with the way things feel at the moment is when you talk about how, noting that our civil war in the United States was our worst, our bloodiest, you point out that civil wars are generally worse than wars with a foreign combatant because there's the element of a sense of betrayal, real hatred, as opposed to national interests, economic or, or, or what have you. Um, and it made me think, I was recently reading a, a long and wonderful investigative piece about the, the funding for Kyle Rittenhouse's legal defense. It was written in the New Yorker, I forget who, who wrote it, but it, it pointed out how in the discourse of the very far right, the word patriot has taken on this very invidious subtext. Um, he did it, show that you're a patriot and go do this violent thing. Are you detached from that? When you see not just the rhetoric, but you see the action, the violence happening at the moment. You mentioned earlier, as a historian, you can look at these grisly things and read about the terrible, the terrible accounts of what's happened to civilians. But as you are watching the violence unfold, as opposed to coming to a slow boil, is there detachment, frustration, fear? Um, it's very hard to remain detached. And I think if I were an American, I'd be even more concerned. But even looking from Canada, and we spend a lot of time looking at the United States from Canada because you are our great big neighbor, um, we're worried about you. And again, as an historian, I know that even relatively stable societies can fall to pieces. You know, that, that it takes a long time to build up a stable society. 
and it takes sadly it seems to me much less time to destroy it and i do think some of the people who are using this rhetoric and, and people who are saying that an act of a true patriot is to go out and kill a fellow citizen are playing are, are playing a very very dangerous game indeed and they're undermining um, the cohesion of society they're driving people into opposing camps and they're also i think undermining the institutions and the rule of law which helps to hold a society together and that does concern me and the united states is the great big power in our world and so we're all concerned about you i think you mentioned um fairly early in the book that writers like hesiod and seneca and other cultures had these myths of you know there was a gilded age and we fell from that grace kind of like a fall of man biblical story. And I was trying to think of sort of um, an American parallel to that idea and, and make America great again. The slogan came to mind, this idea that there was a vague period somewhere in America where we were great and now we're not there anymore. Do you have any insight into where that narrative comes from as it's been, as people have told it to themselves throughout history? I think it's a. I think it's in most societies. I think you know there is a tendency to think that things were better at some other time. I mean, sometimes we look forward and say one day paradise is going to be built on earth, or we'll all go to paradise. But I think in most societies there is a tendency to look back and say you know it's all pretty awful now. Um, you know, I find it even at my age. You know, when we were young, you know, we tend to idealize when we were young, and you know people were nicer and whatever, and and the world was simpler. And I think you find that in, in a lot of societies. I mean, you certainly had it in Greek culture, but you have it in China as well. And the Chinese believe that there was something close to perfection in the past and that, that people have been going downhill ever since. And so I think it's fairly sort of common around the world that we imagine a perfect age in the past. I mean, even in, in the Bible, the founding, you know, the, the Garden of Eden, um, you know, the, 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 in the book of Genesis, it's all wonderful until, of course, Eve eats the apple and, and things go downhill from then on. So I think it seems to me to run through a lot of cultures. Yeah, I, I was struck by the uniformity of it. And uh, you cited a few locations, I think India and, and China having their own versions of that. You just, this is sort of a general history question, but you spoke in the chapter about the motivations of war, why countries go to war. You cite Louis XIV and how with him it was largely vanity and an interest in preserving his legacy. And I couldn't quite tell if you were contrasting it with Hitler, certainly the initial Hitler rhetoric of we want to give the German people, the Aryan race, a, a scope of influence in the planet that is commensurate with their yeah. majesty. Is it, I have two questions. Is it still the case that Hitler was mostly driven ideologically as opposed to vanity and self-interest? And also, again, it's gonna sound like a flippant question. I asked it of another writer. It seems like a historical gray area. What, is there a consensus on Hitler's sexuality and the nature of his marriage with Eva Braun? Were they actually close? Yeah. Well, to answer your second question first, we probably don't know. Um, and what I worry about looking at Hitler's sort of sexual nature is that it may become an explanation for everything else he did. Um, okay. And I, don't, I, I just don't think it's that important about him. I think he, he was probably one of those people who, if he had... Um, you know, Ava Brown was obviously very close to him and he married her just before they both committed suicide. But I think he was far more, his emotions were invested far more in the mission that he had conceived for himself. And that mission, 
very difficult to, to disentangle um, Hitler from the German nation because he saw himself reflected in the German nation and he saw himself as embodying the German nation. I mean, he, he didn't, I think, in his own mind, make a distinction between the German nation and himself. And he felt that he was doing what was best for the German nation. In the end, of course, he felt they had let him down. In the end, he did begin to separate himself from them. In the end, he said they failed me and they don't deserve to survive. Um, but he was someone who I think had this belief and a mission. It was probably partly vanity, but I think for Louis XIV, it was much more about Louis XIV. I don't think he cared about something called the French nation. I think for Hitler, he believed that he was carrying out this great historical mission for the Aryan race, which he saw embodied in the German nation. You talk about, the, you have a wonderful chapter about the art that is generated from war propaganda, and I forget which war and which country this was, where 500 patriotic poems were being submitted a day. Oh, in Germany, and, it, was at, it was at the beginning of the First World War. And one of the big newspapers, I think it was the, maybe one of the, one of the big ones in Frankfurt was getting these poems submitted voluntarily by people. It was a very interesting example of sort of grassroots emotion supporting a war. You know, because right. people and, often support their countries going to war. Right. And, and, uh, and having invoked Hitler, um, my understanding is that Germany obviously has has done some serious confrontation of their own, with of themselves and of their own history. Um, in your research, what did you find? Was there like a kind of standard attitude that countries tended to have looking back on wars of previous centuries? How long do resentments tend to linger? It depends very much on the country, and I think it depends very much on on the local politics at the time. And so some countries will have fought a war and they want to forget about it. And there's no, it's in no one's interest to try and remember it. I mean, the, the Russians today don't pay much attention to the First World War. And for them, it's not a particularly good war. It resulted in Bolshevism, the rule of the Communist Party until 1989 or 1990. And it's not something they really want to think about. What they do want to think about and what the leadership, like Putin, because sometimes our memories are created by pressure groups or by individual leaders. What Putin wants to think about is the Second World War which he calls, and many Russians call, the Great Patriotic War. And that is used as a way to sort of create Russian nationalism and, and to justify Putin himself. You know, he is the leader who took over from Stalin, who was the great patriotic leader, uh, or took over in, with, you know, with various people in between. And so how we remember wars, I think, is very much affected by what's going on at the time. The British are very nostalgic now about the Second World War because I think they're wondering what on earth they're up to. They've left the European Union. Um, they're not sure what their place in the world is. And they keep, particularly those who are for Brexit and, and the Johnson government go on and on about in 1940, we were alone, we fought alone, we didn't need anyone else, which is a myth. And so I think how we remember particular wars is often very much affected by what's happening to us at a particular time. And who wants to remember those wars? I, I, was, um, I recently read Debriefing the President uh, by John Nixon. He was a, um, a CIA analyst who interrogated Saddam Hussein when he was initially captured. And he said that it was very difficult to get answers out of him when, when asking him about his motives in some military maneuver because he would say, well, I have to take you back to the year two and explain to you. He, he felt that his actions were an extension of this long historical arm. Um, so you're saying that I did not know that Putin regularly invokes this event that happened 80 years ago, in your experience, about how much time does a country need to remove itself from a from a war or maybe a, a figure's life before a really a well a very thorough and dependable history is presented? Does it take a generation or two? 
It can often take a generation, I think, because those who write the histories immediately afterwards probably were in the war or were affected by it, and they're bound to have a certain perspective. I mean, what governments have done in the 20th century, and I think it's a very good thing, is they've commissioned official histories, and they've given historian access to a lot of records, and they've tried to encourage them to write as objectively as they possibly can. And some of those official histories have actually been very good, not all, but some of them have really, people have tried to get themselves out of their own times and, and write as if they're historians later on. But the further away you are from it, and in some ways I think the easier it is to write about it because you're not personally affected. And I think for the Americans, I think it took at least a generation really to come to grips with Vietnam. I think, you know, immediately the war was over, you just wanted to get out. You know, you, you managed to get out in 73, 1973. For a while, nobody wanted to talk about the war very much. And then gradually, books began to appear, mem memoirs began to appear, and you got that very good PBS series, for example. And so gradually it became possible to reflect on it with a certain amount of distance from it. And with respect to reflecting on things from a distance, have you found any credibility to the, certainly in the literary world, there's a vibe of um, authorized biographies are less dependable than the unauthorized or when the figure is, you know, 50 years dead and the family doesn't, you don't really need that much cooperation. Have you found that to be the case? Is that a legitimate apprehension among readers? Um, not always. It, it depends very much on the, on the terms of the deal, quite frankly. It's like making a movie out of a book. Um, if the director has a completely free hand, then you'll get a good movie. If, if the person who wrote the book tries to control it, then you'll probably get something that isn't so good. And I think some literary estates have given a completely free hand to the biographer, simply choosing a good biographer and, and saying, you know, do what you do and, you know, we won't try and control it. But others have been extremely difficult. I mean, the Joyce, James Joyce estate was, was actually basically prevented anyone for years. Um, I think it was James Joyce's nephew who controlled it. He wouldn't let anyone look at the papers. Um, and so I think it depends very much on what the estate is like. But Hermione Lee, who's a friend, has done a biography of Tom Stockwood, and he basically gave her access to everything. And he didn't try and control what she wrote. He didn't suggest any changes. You know, he, he was the model subject for a biography. So it really depends on, on the terms on, on which the biographer takes it on and the freedom that the biographer has. But often you can get very good biographies done with the cooperation of the estate or with the cooperation of the person who's being written about. Well, Margaret McMillan, thank you so much. I read War and I'm, I'm really kind of self-conscious about not having a background in history. I'm always afraid that a heavy topic is going to fly over my head, but this was incredibly accessible, incredibly embracing, not the least bit pedantic. It, it covers a, a very broad scope. It's a remarkable book. Avidly recommending it to listeners. And uh, thank you very much for joining okay. me. Alex, thanks. And you ask really good questions, quite tough ones, I must say. But... Thank you.